0: Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Is, uh. Tech 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 talk. Tech 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 talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello influencers. It's time to unfurl the virtual yoga mat. Stretch out, tone your cores, I'll shed some toxins and get in tune with your digital chakra. It's time again for tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here, just cleaning up the last of his chickpeas and goji berries from his Buddha Buddha bowl, it's the illustrious, deeply enlightened guru of all things gadgetry and futuristic, it's Matthew Dickerson. Namaste, mate.
1: Guru. I'm not sure if that's an insult or a compliment, is
0: it? No, no, no. It's definitely a compliment. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, all oh, seeing, all knowing. I think that's what it means. That's, yeah. what, it, that's what it was intended.
1: I just think the word's thrown around a bit loosely these days. Some people <laughs> claim self-guru title. Oh,
0: it's a bit of a sledge. Mm, oh, this guy's a guru. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, well, I'll tell you the compliment. Thank you very good. much. Good. Yeah, yeah, as intended.
1: So I've actually come back from the tennis. The Australian Open's on at the moment or just finished. And so I've come back from the tennis... Watched a bit of tennis. Now, I haven't been to the tennis for a few years. During COVID, obviously, there wasn't the ability to go to the tennis, and I've been mean to go back. I I used to go fairly regularly.
0: And there's nothing like live sport? Nothing Nothing like like live sport.
1: sport. No, nothing like sitting in front of the TV, watching it in the comfort of your (laughs) lounge. Now, live sport is great. I reckon
0: being there and and just soaking out the atmosphere and seeing everything, I reckon that's awesome.
1: No, I absolutely agree. But one of the things that struck me, and it's obvious, and it's been for a few years, but it still struck me, was I'm watching the tennis and I'm looking around the court and I'm going... It seems like it's not a very crowded court. It used to be a bit more crowded. And then I looked again. and I've gone. Oh, that's right. Used to be of course, there's a
0: whole lot of hangers-on, a whole yeah. lot of people there. Well, lines people. Oh, people of course, calling the lines. And yeah. So
1: you'd have people calling the baseline, the sidelines. Obviously, the service line, the service center line. So it's probably I don't know five people at each end. So there were ten people that used to be hanging around the court. Yeah, right. You've got the ball yeah, people course. as well. They're all there, ready to to do what they do, and they do a fantastic job. But I looked there and I went, "Well, I know there's no." lines people i know there's automatic calling but it still looks a bit strange and then i started watching it a bit more and just taking a bit more attention and then of course couldn't help myself so i start googling about the automatic line calling and (laughs) the hawkeye system that they use there and it's actually quite fascinating when that was first introduced and australia was the first grand slam to go totally calling what are they called they line people yeah totally vacant of lines people yeah And that was back at the beginning of the pandemic, so 2021, it was the first Grand Slam to have no lines people at all. And so the players were a bit unsure about it all, but if you remember back to the stage when they were first introducing automatic line calling, and Hmm. there were some stages there where there was...
0: We could protest it. You could
1: protest. There was a a DRS system, not sure if it was called DRS, but like cricket, a DRS. So you didn't like the line call, you held your racket up, or you did something, and Gone. But it was
0: more, more to make people feel good about themselves, wasn't it? Like how they could dispute it. Maybe. Did they, did they overturn them at all?
1: Well, well, this is the thing. So I think back in those days, there was a person calling the line and then if the player wasn't happy, they'd say, no, I want to dispute that. Then they'd go to the Hawkeye system as a secondary backup system and then you'd hear the, ah, right, the yeah. kind of slight groan and then raising cheer from the crowd if it looked like the ball was going to go in or out <laughs> and depending on which player they were going for. And so that was the first step. Yeah. But 2021, they said, we're not going to have – any lines people at all. And again, I haven't been to the tennis since the pandemic. And so I'm there and I'm watching it. And it's really quite eerie because the ball lands and you'll hear a human voice say out or fault. And you you look around and there's no human calling it. So they've actually recorded human voices, male and female, and they actually have it calling out.
0: And it doesn't sound like Siri, the ball was
1: out. <laughs> no, maybe they should do that. But it sounds exactly <laughs> like a person would be there. It's kind of a short, sharp yell. But what I started to look at was the technology behind that you've got cameras a number of cameras anywhere from say six to ten cameras around the court recording at approximately 540 frames per second so compared to normal video in australia is 25 frames per second and then it's doing a whole bunch of calculations to determine because at 540 frames per second the fastest serve is 263 kilometers an hour Mm. so at that speed one frame would be somewhere in the vicinity of Thirteen centimeters, I think that's right. That the ball would move in that in that one frame at that speed. Okay. So you could still have a fair bit of difference. Now they yeah claim, thirteen
0: centimeters. That's in or out.
1: That's right. Now they claim the accuracy of their system is within three point six millimeters. So there's obviously some calculations uh. done between each frame, and obviously the ball's travelling in a certain direction, so they can extrapolate that out and say here's where it would be at these different points. But what's really fascinating is the players hear the call out, and you can see them kind of going oh 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 oh. oh. I've got no one to protest against. John McEnroe would have been completely... <laughs> yeah,
0: that was the first <laughs> thing I thought about. McEnroe would have just had nothing to chew over.
1: Well, What would he have done? He would have started yelling and complaining. And who do I complain to? Where, where's the guy who wrote this program? Where? Just He's sitting over in England somewhere. Maybe. Yeah, that's probably right. But it was actually quite fascinating. But it actually meant the game moved on quicker, there was no waiting for a replay, there was no getting frustrated, there was no waiting for the chair umpire to maybe overrule the Lions person, it was just, that was the call, and the players just on. You could see them hesitate, but mm. they just moved on and played the next point. So I actually found it quite fascinating. I feel a bit sorry for all the lines people that are now out of work. They were paid money to call lines. <laughs> oh, it's AI's AI
0: taking our jobs. Exactly right. Yeah. So
1: hopefully some of those lines people are in programming the AI and helping with that <laughs> side of it. But I did find it quite fascinating. Oh, and I know I right. probably sound a bit behind the times because it's been in for a few years, but it was just fascinating being there, watching it happen mm. in real life and just seeing how the game just flowed on and moved People complain about the DRS in cricket, for example, because they stopped the game. But in this, it was done, but also done so quickly. It was the ball landed, and if it was out, the call was out as quick as a person staying there doing it. It's
0: just a whole lot of don't argue. Yeah, that's it. Well, very good. Okay, we've got a bunch of good uh, goodies to tuck into today. Um, we've got a couple of tech developments for farmers, one for the fans of the Concord, if you can remember back that far, and a little something-something for partners of snorers craving a good night's sleep. But our first story today comes courtesy of the source of all our energy, so let's soak in some sunlight and get stuck in. Imagine a world where your gadgets are always charged, but minus all the cords and clutter. Listen in, folks, as we shed light on some cutting-edge indoor solar technology that's making this dream a reality. We're taking a leaf out of the book of nature. If plants can photosynthesize indoors then surely a solar cell can work its magic indoors as well, Matt. Now, do
1: you remember those rich kids at school that used to have a solar-powered calculator?
0: Or a solar-powered watch?
1: Oh, that was a bit over the top. I didn't mm. know anyone that rich. I no. only knew the rich kids with the solar-powered calculators. Yeah. So they were quite fascinating. And you'd always have someone who was using it. And just to prove that it was really solar-powered, they'd put their hand over the solar panels, and the screen went dead, and you lift it off, and, oh, it was alive <laughs> again. Yeah. How cool was that?
0: <laughs> Living in the future.
1: That was a long time ago. <laughs> well, I was at school a long time ago. But... We're at the point now where we've got some crystalline, sorry, dye sensitized solar cells appearing on products that do actually work indoors.
0: Yeah, so solar cells, you know, you get a calculator work, but not much else. And so, um, yeah, when you're working indoors. And so that's always been a bit of a problem. It has but been. it's just light. It just needs light. Well, and the problem it's gotta is... It's got to be the right frequency.
1: Well, it has, but it's also the problem is when you look at the normal crystalline silicon-based solar panels or even the amorphous silicon cells, then they're relying on sunlight, they're relying on bright light. The normal solar panels that you see don't really work indoors in light and let's just Mm. say for the moment let's go on a quick diversion we haven't discovered endless power here we can't turn (laughs) the light on have it shine on some solar panels and then power the light and then go around in circles forever
0: we we haven't invented energy here (laughs) that's right
1: so we're just changing its form and we lose a bit along the way but you've got a number of products now with these dye sensitized solar cells that are reacting to low amounts of light so we're talking about indoor light here so what we're going to do with these you've got products coming out now headphones earbud cases tv remotes so things that don't need too much power and even some things that are outdoor so helmets we did an article last year where you had someone with or a company that came out with a helmet with some of these solar panels on it, and they could then charge up your lights, for example. That was still sunlight, though, but these other ones are relying on indoor light. Now, the good part is here, we know we waste a lot of resources when we Mine to create batteries, and then we use those batteries and then we throw them back into landfill. Mm. If we can avoid that, that sounds like a good thing. So, you've got some of these products that are just using small rechargeable batteries, and it only needs enough charge so that if you turn the lights off or you're not in that enough light area for a short amount of time, it's okay. But some of these products are actually using super capacitors, which you know, you take your capacitor, it stores power for a short amount of time. Super mm. capacitor does that a bit better. It does it like a super <laughs> capacitor. <laughs> but again, you're not even using a battery with a capacitor. And again, you probably, your remote control. You're probably going to have the lights on and if you turn the lights off, that's not off for long, there would be enough power stored in that capacitor to be yeah. able to send a signal to your TV. It's not yeah. using a lot of power to do that. And that's the secret here. These products are not using much power. If you want to do it something like a smartphone then it's just not going to have enough power sitting in your home to create enough power to power your smartphone. When we get the super, super capacitors. (laughs) Maybe that's right. They're going to store the power, though. (laughs) It's still got to get it from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's one of the things. But I think with lots of little products indoors, that to me sounds attractive. And it also means you probably would get more products. You'd probably get more smart home products, more sensors, for example, Mm. if you can just rely on the fact that I'm not using a battery, a rechargeable battery that degrades. I'm just using a capacitor. And I'm always going to have enough light around to have some power there. Then I could use this center or whatever it might be without having to worry about a battery. Now, I know there's one of my electronic locks in the house that I use my watch to get into the house with. And the only downside of that is that it's got normal batteries in it and I have to replace them every couple of months. It's a first world problem, I know. Yeah, but it seems like a but bit of a that's annoying. It is. Yeah. Especially if I've For something that's such
0: an awesome piece of technology – to have to go and replace the batteries every couple of months.
1: So that was one I thought of. Now, that doesn't use much power. It does when it's actually activating the lock, but the rest of the time it's sitting there. It's sitting there for Mm. 99.9% of the time. So having something like this on there that just picked up the light in the room probably would be enough to keep some rechargeable batteries charged up and then it would need the higher current that the rechargeable batteries would give it when it's actually activating the lock. Mm. So you start to think about that and you go, well, that means I don't have to replace those batteries and all the things that you've got batteries in Then you start to think about, I've got a, I know it sounds silly, I've got a remote control on my push bike to to, to control my bike computer. I know it saves me an extra half a metre of stretching over with my arm, but it's just convenient at the grip. I'm trying to justify it to myself here. Yeah, keep going, keep going, listening. (laughs) So my thumb can just reach the control. It's got one of those nice little flat battery or the the watch type batteries in it. So again, every few months, I've got to replace that battery. Wouldn't it be nice if it just had some of these solar panels Mm. on there and it kept it charged up all the time? So I think once we see some of these products come out, which we are seeing now, you'll see a lot more products that are actually using this. And then we start to get the stage where we throw away the concept of batteries or we get rechargeable batteries and might have to replace for a few years. Not every few months. So well, it sounds pretty exciting. How
0: do they build in, uh, what is it, that obsolescence thing um, yeah, yeah, so they can keep the, selling them?
1: All the battery manufacturers out there, what are we going to do now? <laughs> well, you know, You've got a fair few rechargeables to sell till you get to that point in time. Exactly. Now, it's, it does sound quite fascinating though and I love the fact that it's something that we used a long time ago in those calculators mm. and it's kind of come back but it's come back to the point where it's actually more practical to be used now.
0: There's quite a bit of interest from our listeners about personal medical monitors. And we hate to disappoint here at Tech Talk. Introducing the BMO. It's a four-in-one device that'll provide some very useful data, particularly for those of us with cardiac conditions. Matt, a very handy little gadget here.
1: It is. It actually does four things, as you mentioned there. It's a thermometer. It's an electrocardiogram. It's an oximeter. Yeah, an ACG. That's right. And a stethoscope. Now, one thing it doesn't do is take your blood pressure. And the only reason I mention that is because I love your pronunciation.
0: <laughs> oh, the sphygmomanometer. Thank you. That's it. <laughs>
1: so it doesn't do that for you, but it does just about everything else. Now, I'm a bit worried about one part of this. When I go into a medical practice or a hospital, I can immediately work out who the doctors are by the stethoscope hanging around their neck.
0: Yeah, okay. Now,
1: if you take that away and give them a little device that looks like, well, it's a bit smaller than a smartphone – and they've got that to replace their stethoscope. How am I going to know mm. who the doctors mm. are? How are they going to say... They're that not going to feel like doctors. They're not going to... No, they're probably going to throw away their whole <laughs> career because they can't walk around with a stethoscope. Now, what's fascinating about this is it changes what it does as you point it at different parts of your body. So if you point it, for example... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at your chest, then it actually works as a stethoscope. And you plug in a little headphone. Headphones, so that the doctor yeah. plugs in a little headphone and listens to your chest... And so all the things that might be picked up with that cold stethoscope that goes on. I remember as a kid, <laughs> you, know, you go to the doctor and lift up your shirt and you oh, it's so cold, doctor. You're warming up a little bit first. But you felt
0: like you were going to the doctor. Oh, Now it's did. just… Well, point this, this at your chest and, and can—that's
1: <laughs> right, I can <laughs> hear what's happening inside your chest. Point it at your forehead and it picks up the temperature. So depending on where you point it at your body, really? that's where it will do different things. Now, this is probably one of those things that I would say is great for home users, anyone that's got some concerns about their health. If we can monitor our health more And again, it's one of those things, if you treasure it, then measure it. So if you're worried about different parts of your body, then measure it and see how it's going. And then, oh, wait up, that doesn't look so good. Mm. My blood oxygen level is not great. Or maybe my uh, heart rate is uh, jumping or a bit We're variable. feeding
0: hypochondria here.
1: Well, <laughs> maybe too. So you are doing all that and mm. you go to the doctor and say, look at this, dog. It's all goes, normal, okay? Yeah, That's how okay. Your heart does <laughs> sound a bit strange. That's how it should sound. But the idea of this to me is just really giving access to some basic medical ideas or items for everyone. And then when they see something, again, I always say, go and see the doctor. I can see doctors having these in their surgeries, I can see people having well, the ECG it as well.
0: interests me because having had a couple of ECGs, they got to stick the little things, the electrodes, all over your body. Yeah. yeah, so to do
1: that with a device that you point at your body. Yeah. Now, again, is it as accurate as the ECG with all the leads and the machine that goes bing? Well, probably not quite as accurate as that, but it gives you an indication. And all of these things we talk yeah, it's about, the start. It's yeah, the first bit. with the wearables, with our bio wearables, with our health sensors, all of these things at home you're paying about $350 for this. So you're probably not going to get the same level that you would get in the hospital, Mm. but you're still getting an indication and sometimes it can be a change. So you, you're monitoring it on a week by week basis and you notice some change that might be an indicator to go and see the doctor. The, Raw data, the raw numbers, may not be as accurate as a machine in the hospital. But if you're noticing that change, that might be enough to indicate mm. that something's happening. Well, uh,
0: the oximeter, I think, is a useful one. When you get crook, you can be quite low on oxygen. Yeah, so... And you need, uh, what, about 96% or something. Yeah. yeah,
1: normally you're getting up around that, aren't you? So, again, it just seems like a pretty cool concept. It's from Withings, Wythings, Withings. And they do a whole range of different medical devices. And I think that's something that they've really captured as their niche and they're working out what else they can do, what else can they monitor with non-invasive devices. So it Mm. sounds fascinating.
0: Fantastic. The story of the Concorde is a very interesting one, uh, from its concept to uh, the retirement in 2003. For 30 years, it shuttled people at supersonic speeds between Europe and the US. The flight path over the Atlantic Ocean meant that it could regularly drop a sonic boom without disturbing the people below. A sonic boom, it's an impressive thing. But if you were living under the regular flight path, I can imagine that it would get pretty old pretty quick. So NASA reckon they've got the answer, Matt. They do
1: think they've got an answer. Let's let's explore the sonic boom for a moment. I find this concept quite fascinating. So at... The at sea level at about 20 degrees Celsius, the speed of sound is about 343 meters per second. So you're going along in a vehicle, well, probably on a car, but a plane at say sea level. When your plane starts traveling faster than that, you're actually compressing the airwaves or the sound waves that are trying to get out of the road.
0: Well, yeah, and you've caught up with the sound yeah. that you've just created.
1: Isn't that fascinating? You, you, you've caught up with the sound. <laughs> <and> so, <laughs> so you're going along, and then you're getting that almost that double compression, which ends up being yeah. that sonic boom. Now, of course... When and you we, can
0: look at pictures. Of, go, guys, Google this, and check out pictures of fighter jets breaking. And you, you've got this cloud that forms around the plane, this disk cloud. Yeah. It's impressive.
1: It is. It's very cool. And, and of course, it's, it's that whole thing about... The difference in speed between sound and light. We're not going to catch up with light because mm-hmm. we can't go faster than light anyway. But I, I do remember one of our science teachers at school. He was demonstrating the difference in speed between light and sound, and so he had two bits of uh, might have been a, a blackboard rubber and a and another metal or, or timber instrument, and he'd walk a meter away and he'd tap those two together. So he said they look simultaneous, don't they? He said I'll keep walking away, and then tell me when. They're different. Of course, we got together at the class and said we'll just keep telling him they look the same. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he's way across the other side of the playground, hitting the two together. Uh, no, no, they look uh, the same he went so far.
0: Right down the road, about a kilometre. <laughs> That's right. <Are> you sure?
1: <laughs> but yeah, you do see. It, you don't have to get that far away and you yeah. see a difference between yeah. the two. Well, you want to spend the together. cricket.
0: You know, watch the cricket and from the boundary line, you can see them hit the ball. Yeah, and then you hear that, and then you think the, someone the,
1: beside you has just hit some bit of timber there. So <laughs> it's quite fascinating. Now, when you get up a bit higher, obviously the speed of sound changes more to do with the temperature. So, for example, when you get up to about 10,000 metres, which a lot of aircraft fly around that sort of height, then you're getting down to probably minus 50 degrees Celsius. So the speed of sound drops at that level to about 295 metres per second. So it's actually easier mm. to create a sonic boom the higher you go because the speed of sound drops, so you're catching up to it easier. This is all a problem in a first world world. Scenario when we can't fly at the speed of sound across, say, for example, mainland USA. It's mm. illegal to go and fly a commercial jetliner. So, the Concorde, for example, would take off typically from New York and go across to London. Yeah. It could go across America, but there wasn't much point because it couldn't go above the speed of sound. They weren't allowed to. Yeah, go. they weren't allowed to. Yeah. yeah it physically, it could have done it, but you can imagine why because you're sitting there having a nice cup of tea in the afternoon and you hear this sonic boom. I imagine that it's pretty loud. I can't say <laughs> so I've ever been unnecessary. Well, I remember boom.
0: someone who did here in our town, and uh, it was actually. Yeah, uh, it must have been 15 years ago now, right. and it was impressive. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. We we actually ran out of the classroom to go <laughs> and check it out. And, of course, you look up at the wrong spot. The plane is no longer in the spot where you, can, you know, thought the sound was coming yeah, from.
1: Yeah, of course. So what NASA's doing now is they've got an X-59 aircraft. Now, they think they can fly faster than the speed of sound, without creating a sonic boom. And, of course, the first thing I say is, so what, they're just going to ignore physics? They're going to say yeah. that physics is there, <laughs> but we don't care about <laughs> physics. What they're doing is they're trying to essentially ease their way through the air rather than oh. smack their way through the air. Okay. So they've got a long nose, about a third of the plane is made up of nose, <laughs> So and it's a very pointy nose, a bit like yeah. the Concorde was a bit pointy, but this yeah. goes a lot pointier, and so that's kind of trying to be very aerodynamic as it goes through the air. They then put the engines on top of the plane rather than out sitting to the sides or at the bottom of the wings like they used to be in the Concorde, so they're trying to minimise that sound from the engines as well, but they think they've got a design of an aircraft that that still creates some sound but not a deafening sonic boom. Whether they want to get to the stage where they fly commercial aircraft across the mainland, that's for someone to explore in the future. But at this stage, they think they'll have their first flight for the end of this year or before the end of this year, where they'll fly this across mainland USA, probably not across New York in the first instance. They'll probably do (laughs) some testing out in the desert somewhere and then get to the point where they can fly at about 1.4 times the speed of sound. So at the height they're flying out, maybe 1,500 kilometres an hour.
0: There's got to be a market for it. Well, There's gotta be a market for people who want to fly across Europe or fly across the States you know, at, you know, at uh, getting from New York to LA or vice versa in an hour yeah. rather than three hours.
1: Well the thing is we seem to have five, almost don't know how it takes, yeah. hit a, a bit of a standstill. We take about the same amount of time to fly around different locations, Sydney to Perth, for example. We've probably been at the same speed for the last Two or three decades doing that, so we haven't mm. really progressed that far because that damn physics gets in the road again. Yeah. But if they can do something with this, I, I agree with you. There is a market, absolutely. There's a market there for yeah. it. Yeah,
0: and uh, well, we know that the market dropped out for the Concorde, but that was specifically for people who want to fly between Europe and the states. Yeah,
1: because okay. you had a bit of ocean there where yeah. the sonic boom wasn't such a big issue, yeah. apart from some sailors out there going, but "What if, was
0: that there?" But if you open that up, yeah, that'll be yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I look forward to it. And a
1: bit like the Concorde, they've got. No forward facing window, so the pilots have to fly without seeing out in front of them. Remember the Concorde, the nose yeah. would drop down yeah. and pull up once you started flying. So you're sitting in the cockpit and you can't see out the front of the plane, which is a bit <laughs> eerie, but obviously you've got enough other instruments in there to know exactly what's happening, you hope. Yeah. So keep an eye out for that one, keep an ear out even for that one. End of this year, we'll see that flying.
0: There can be no question. The use of biometrics has improved the security of our personal devices out of sight. Humble fingerprint scans and facial recognition are fairly standard these days on most phones, but some clever cookies at the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras reckon that a person's breath is as good as either of those two options. (laughs) Matt, surely there are too many variables in a person's breath which would render it a non-option. Surely this is just a bunch of hot air. Oh, please, please. (laughs) You Ah, just waited for that holding through for that one. (laughs) I was building up to it.
1: So let me talk first of all about security on phones. Back in the old days when we had basic phones and flip phones, that type of thing, most people didn't have a pin on there because if someone stole your phone, the worst they'd normally do is they'd run up a phone bill. But you'd discover that and you'd cut off your phone or you'd tell your carrier to please put a block on your phone. And then we started to get a few contacts in our address book, so we put a pin on there, but yeah. you had a few goes at it for a four-digit pin. Well, let's face it, there's only 10,000 options for a four-digit pin, <laughs> so you might guess a few, postcode or whatever. But then we started to get a lot of information on their phones when smartphones came along. Yeah. So it wasn't just a nice little pin that you wanted to lock it with. You'd use your face, you'd use your fingerprint. So they were getting better methods, but a fingerprint, well, if I really want to steal your phone and get into it, you know, I just... Cut your finger off and take your phone and away I go, which mm. I know sounds a bit, a bit, you know, something's not going to happen, but it, but it has happened. People have actually had fingers cut off to steal their phone and their data and away they go.
0: And facial recognition can actually work with pictures of the person, can't pictures
1: it? or siblings, or yeah, right. sometimes people that are closely related. So it's not perfect as well. So we're trying to get our phone security better. When I talk about phone security, a whole range of things. I've been to data centers where had to scan your face to get into the data center. So there's a whole range of biometrics. The ultimate security is to have something, to know something, and to be someone. Mm. So combine facial recognition mm. with some type of pin and some type of device that's got some code that is regenerated every minute or so. So that's the ultimate security. But for most people, they're not going to do all that to get into their phone. So these researchers at the Indian Institute of Technology have said the breath pattern of each person on this planet is unique. Now, unique's a big claim. Yes. Mostly unique. I hate it when people start putting things around unique. Unique is binary. It's either unique or it isn't. But unique. It means that every breath pattern... Now, I'm I start, just
0: thinking that I'm not using my phone if i finished a park run, <laughs> and neither is anyone else who's just <laughs> finished their park run.
1: Well, I was thinking, <laughs> coming out of India, you have a nice curry, does your breath smell a little bit different? So it's not about the smell. It's not about the molecules coming out of your mouth so much. It's about the velocity. It's about the way they come out. So it doesn't matter whether you've just Surely done a park not. run That's or whether crazy. you've eaten a curry. Yeah, It's all about the actual shape of your air path, your canal, your throat, that as the air comes out, it creates different velocity, different turbulence. And they believe that's unique to every person on this planet. They've tested with two people so far. (laughs) (laughs) They've tested with more than two people. But but that's the thing. It seems like such a strange thing. But when you start to talk about getting things that are unique and being able to unlock things, the great part about that is that you need a person alive. So I can't take a picture oh. and then use their face. I yeah. can't cut off their hand or their thumb and use that to get in. I need the person to still be breathing because how else am I going to replicate that breath pattern apart from the person still breathing?
0: Well, can't you wave your hand in front of it? In front of the breath? <laughs> well, in front of the phone and and just you, like with a fan. Or, you, <laughs> or have an adjustable, I don't know. <laughs> there,
1: there might I'm, be. Just,
0: I'm just thinking, this has got to be a furphy.
1: Well, no, they're doing serious <laughs> research on yeah, it. Yeah, okay. Now,
0: well, and I look forward to being uh, wearing the egg on my face <laughs> uh, when all this is said and done, but I just cannot believe that you can open your phone with your breath.
1: Well, it, but it would sound quite fascinating, wouldn't it? You'd start talking to your phone and that would unlock your phone and yeah. away you go. You'd have the conversation or you'd you unlock it and do whatever you want with it. So it's fascinating where we're headed and it's also fascinating the amount of research that's going into more security, using our bodies to be able to protect our data because that data on our phone now is so important. And then our data on other parts are getting into your house, getting into your business, getting into your car. You might just need to breathe on all of those and away you go. (laughs) You don't sound convinced.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure many of our listeners out there have youngsters who are either on their L plates or their P plates. Building confidence in a learner is so important. But I tell you, those moments of panic, hesitation or indecision can really get the adrenaline pumping in most, in amongst the traffic there. But then there comes a time when a pea player's confidence well and truly overrides their level of experience. And risk-taking is suddenly much more commonplace than a discerning parent would otherwise prefer. Matt, speaking as a father with kids at this stage of life, any tools to help development of a young driver's experience here would be warmly welcomed.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to give you an idea of how scary the stats are, in 2021, the data that came out of the US, for example, said that drivers aged 15 to 20, I'm not sure why 15, but anyway, that's the I bracket I think you there. can
0: get yeah, L's uh, a, v- a bit younger than here in Australia. Oh, yeah. can you? Okay. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. And so, I say L's, but they don't even carry L plates, I don't think.
1: Right. So ages 15 to 20, they constitute only 5% of the drivers in the US but the number of kilometres they do is less than that because you've got older people who are travelling many more kilometres. So you've got 5% of the drivers, about 3% of the actual kilometres driven, and then you've got 8.4% of that age group involved in fatal traffic accidents. So the data says what we would guess at, but it's always nice to have some data to back you up, to say that young people, both inexperienced and by the very nature, younger people don't always equate risk- to consequences. So mm. they sometimes take risks without thinking about the consequences. Oh, and
0: a lot of the time have greater confidence in their own skills and in the, the movement of traffic around them or in the conditions. Mm. Um, just poor judgment. It poor takes judgment. a while to build your judgment.
1: And the other part is that you don't always realize that when you're driving on the road, you've got to drive your car and then be aware of other cars. For sure. So you might do the right thing, but if you're a slightly more cautious driver or more experienced, you might realize that that guy on the road, on the side there who's not looking your direction may actually pull out in front of you. He's in the wrong still but more experienced driver...
0: You've still got to deal with an accident. That's right.
1: And the more experienced driver might hold back going, that person hasn't looked in my direction You know, I'll just hold back a little bit. I hate the creepers at intersections. The guys (laughs) and girls who just slowly creep. You go, are they going to go? Are they going to go? I'm just going to hold back a bit. And then you're holding back and then they're going, is that person stopping or is that person going? Mm. So just stop. When it's a stop sign, just stop. Anyway, When you start to look at how we can improve this, there's a whole range of ways. I know with my kids, I took them down to a motorsport park where they had defensive driver training, a big skid pan, put water across it. They put a bunch of cones out there and for a day, they get the kids to go through and do emergency braking, emergency steering, emergency evasion. And there's more, most times people do an emergency brake the first time a car is in front of them or a kangaroo jumps out in front of them. But on this day, all these kids, and again, all my kids have done this, went through and did 50 or 100 emergency braking situations. Mm. So when it happens in the real world, hopefully they're more prepared for it because they've practiced for it. It makes sense. That's expensive to do that, though. Mm. What we've got in Ohio at the moment is that you've got a test setup which has got a bit like a game. It's got a driving wheel, brake pedal, accelerator, and a laptop running some assessment software. They run a 15-minute test. And in that, they just have them drive around the city, not going out on a racetrack trying to to beat Sebastian Vettel. They have them driving around a a normal city environment with pedestrians, with just normal cars coming in and out. And what they're doing is they're monitoring all of their actions, but they're also monitoring their eyes. And at the end of that, they give them an analysis. How have you done? What were the things that you did well? What were the things you didn't do so well? So I was reading some of the reports, and for example, there was one person, they said, when you get onto a straight stretch of road you tended to go over the speed limit. You're doing this for 15 minutes in an assessment, so you think you'd stick to the speed limit Mm. in that assessment, but a straight road, they just naturally started going a bit faster because why not? It's a nice straight stretch of road. They actually found people were having trouble with different corners, maybe turning left. They had left less awareness than people turning right. Where were their eyes moving on the screen? Were they looking towards that traffic where it would be coming from? So what they did with all of that, they said, we've got an assessment now to say how we think you'll go they did 17,000 drivers, young drivers through this program to begin with, and then assessed how many of those drivers were involved in accidents in the months afterwards. And so they found that the best performing people on the tests had a 10% lower crash risk after they actually had their license out driving. And those that performed poorly had an 11% higher risk. So what translated from those tests was real world, Mm. they replicated what happened on that 15 minute test. Take that information from the test then start to do some training around that. So you perform poorly or you weren't aware of left turns or whatever it might be, so we need to do some extra training on that. Be more aware of that. Yeah, that's uh, right. And if you're aware of that, hopefully you can do some intervention and try and do some extra training around those things because we don't want to lose people at any age Mm. in a car accident, but using young people with so much potential is obviously a terrible tragedy. So I love the idea of it. I would like us to see it, be compulsory to do more driver training again that makes it expensive and sometimes people say that's not accessible but at least with something like this it's fairly cost effective Hmm. it's a computer setup and 15 minutes of work and then you've got some things to work on so i i applaud the people that have set this up and hopefully it'll spread much further
0: for sure now we've explored a number of solutions to snoring on this podcast over the years It's clearly an area of great importance. A good night's sleep for all is a precious thing, so any solution needs to work for all parties involved. Matt. If only there was an answer in something as comfy as a pillow.
1: <laughs> it does sound interesting, doesn't it? An anti-snoring pillow. You think, so what's it do? Does it wrap over the top of you and just start to muffle your breath? It <laughs> oh, doesn't sound like there's a good outcome from <laughs> that. that.
0: just the gurgling sounds of someone suffocating, right. right?
1: It doesn't do that, you'll be pleased to know. What it does do is it detects slight movement indicating snoring and slight sounds, just those initial sounds before the full-blown 747 snore starts to come out, and then adjusts the sleeper's head. So it's got some... AI built into it. It links to an app so I can give you a report in the morning on how it's all gone and it's got some little air pillows within the pillow that it can use to inflate and adjust the actual air and where you might move your head around. It sounds much more comfortable than say a knee in the back from your partner in yeah. bed with you.
0: Or punch <laughs> and, in the arm. Yeah. That's right
1: and as you keep getting if you do keep getting a bit louder it will make more movements and change things. Now, this is the same company, Derucci, who actually makes sleep mattresses as well, where they've got different things that they might do in the mattress to try and help you with comfortable positions and make it more comfortable. But this is the first time they've come up with an anti-snoring pillow. Now, you've got to be serious about it. You're paying almost $1,000 for this anti-snoring yeah, pillow. Right. Okay. So you then start to wear up the cost of a knee in the back compared to the cost <laughs> of an anti-snoring <laughs> pillow. But you're right, we have done a few different products around snoring. It's obviously a big problem. I don't have any data to back this up, but obviously, with various companies bringing out anti snoring products, it must be a big problem out there in society with lots of people For snoring. Sure. So, if anyone been-
0: who's had to tolerate a snorer.
1: Well, there's, there's help on the way. Good we've luck. talked about watches. We've talked about different products that might wake you up, uh, maybe some uh, uh, electric shock treatment there and there, <laughs> throwing it somewhere. <laughs> but this is quite fascinating. This was revealed at CS 2024, but it is available, and essentially you could go and get this, well, maybe not right now because you'd probably have a bit of a pre-order process, but you can buy this if you have got a snore in your life and it's worth spending $1,000 on them, then mm. this is worthwhile. Well, how much is a at- good night's sleep worth you? Yeah, well, at least a $1,000, you'd hope. <laughs>
0: two weeks ago we brought you news of a mighty clash where apple had infringed upon some of massimo's uh, and i think i've said that right massimo's health monitoring patents with two of their smartwatch models that's two of apple's smartwatch models Matt's here with an update of, on what actually does happen when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object.
1: <laughs> well, you need an experiment, don't you? It's always a theory of the unstoppable force and mm-hmm. the immovable object. So how do you solve mm-hmm. that problem? You put it to the to the test to in the, the real first, world. And here we go. And the real world test, normally I'd say Apple wins every time because they have more solicitors than they do have innovators. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's <laughs> true or not, but it seems like that sometimes. that They have a pretty big army of a legal team to go and approach everything like this. And it's normally Apple that's being the aggressor. Mm. It's normally someone who's named their store Apples Are Us because they sell Granny Smith Apples, and Apple comes along and says, yeah. sorry, we own that word. You can't use that. In this case, they're not the aggressor. Massimo said, hold on, that's our patent. We want you to stop sales. Now, the court ruled they had to stop sales. Mm. Now, of course, Apple didn't take that line down. They said, well, we don't agree with that. We'll go and try and fight that. But what they're having to do at the moment is a software update to address the patent infringement. So it means that they've just reduced one of the features in their Apple Watch. Now, they'll keep fighting it, but for them to be able to keep selling it, Mm. the Biden administration upheld the ruling from the ITC, which is the International Trade Commission, and so they said, basically, they formalised the ban when they did that. So for Apple to keep selling their products, and they don't want to stop these products being sold in the US, they said, okay, we'll do a software update, we'll remove that feature via software, we'll keep fighting you, and the good part about that is, If they then win the court battle, they can then turn it back on in the software. So it's interesting. I mean, I I would have thought from Apple's perspective, and this isn't the way they do things, but if Massimo said you've infringed their patent and they've got a patent and they've got a reasonable argument, which obviously they have because the courts ruled in their favour, then I would have thought that Apple would have said, here's some money, go away, we'll continue to sell our watch. But Apple doesn't like to do that. They don't <laughs> have to pay money out. They'd, they'd rather pay their solicitors than they would pay someone else for a patent. So mm. I do like the fact that maybe the small guy is actually having a bit of a victory yeah. over the big guy. There is this constant battle of power between the big guys and small innovators. Mm. You want those small innovators to still look like they can keep doing things and keep innovating. Yeah,
0: otherwise you run out of ideas. You're completely reliant on the big guys to come up with all the ideas. That's right.
1: And sometimes they get a bit safe. Sometimes they get a bit complacent. We've seen that with various companies. Motorola did it with mobile phones. Nokia did it with mobile phones. Toyota's doing it now with cars. So you get these market leaders and they become a bit complacent when they're out in front. And I remember seeing a quote from Kathy Freeman around the 2000 Olympics. It was this wonderful poster advertising some product that she was selling, obviously. And it said, the way to stay number one is to act like you're number two. Mm. And it's true. Mm. If you get to number one and think, I've got it now, I've got it made, that's when you become complacent. That's when you rest on your laurels. And then suddenly you blink and the world's gone past you. So you've got to be continue to innovate. So I like the fact that some of the small guys having a bit of a crack and, and stirring up the big guys, where this ends up. I think Apple will win eventually, but it's a bit of a wake-up call along the way. Yeah,
0: and hopefully it's it's more about innovation than it is about um, legal arm wrestling. And so yeah. yeah we want yeah. we want we want people to come up with good innovations.
1: Well I, I love the fact that when I read one of the parts of the legal argument it said the ITC opposed Apple's request to stay the sales ban and they cited the lack of a convincing argument from
0: Apple. <laughs> <Forget> <laughs> what am I paying you for? <laughs> you horde, you army of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, is that the best you
1: can? Well, I want a convincing argument, okay? So does that mean if they had a, had a convincing argument, the would say, oh, gee, that's pretty convincing. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah, let you yeah. go back and start selling those <laughs> products again. Keep tuned to this one, and mm. we'll bring you updates as they come through. But it is something that I think that's quite interesting really in the, in the interesting, legal yeah. slash technical world.
0: Now this following story is not a subject where I can speak from a whole lot of experience but I think that I can imagine that calving season might be a particularly stressful time for a cattle grazier. You've got to be out in the paddock for long hours watching the ladies for signs of impending labour and ready to fly into action if trouble starts. It's an important role for a farmer and mistakes can be very expensive but it's enormously time taxing and there has to be a better way in 2024 Matt.
1: There is a better way in 2024. Yay! (laughs) Thank goodness that? And I know we've got some listeners that are farmers because I get some feedback from them on a semi-regular basis. So you're right. It is probably a stressful time for a farmer. You'd hope that your cows that are having calves are out there and they do what nature does, but Mm. sometimes they need a bit of a hand and it's not worth the expense, also the discomfort for a cow to then have trouble in childbirth or perhaps even die in childbirth. You want to ring the vet, bring in some help or help, yourself and i've talked to many a farmer who's had to get in there and, and help that calf yeah, out of the yeah. out of the way
0: had first-hand experience there As i've said i've not got a lot of experience but i have got first-hand experience yeah. mm-hmm.
1: so one of the things that nikon has done and nikon is well known for its cameras my brothers a, or used to be a professional photographer in my younger days when when that profession existed i don't know if it exists anymore because everyone uses their own smartphone but you know, nikon was a big thing and, and they produced some magnificent cameras They've now realized that maybe not everyone's going to buy the high end SLR camera like they used to buy, mm. so they've got to branch out and they're branching out into using their camera experience and combining that with AI. So they've created an imaging camera specifically for birth or cows giving birth to calves. So you sit the camera in an area that can capture your cows, and then with about five hours notice, they estimate they'll be able to detect with their camera technology and the AI behind it that this cow is getting ready to give birth. So then an alert goes to the farmer's smartphone and he can get there with plenty of time up his sleeve because there's at least five hours before the birth. Now... Human happen, sorry Nature happens sometimes, so five hours might not always be five hours, but it would normally be a couple of hours. More importantly, you'd be there before the birth happens, and obviously mm. that's when the problems can sometimes happen, when the birth is actually happening. And you
0: haven't had to sit around waiting for something to happen. Waiting
1: while you're meant to be out doing something else. There's yeah. fences to be fixed. There's other work to be done around the farm. Keep doing that. You get the alert on your smartphone, drop what you're doing, go over and make sure your cows are going okay. Yeah. So it's fascinating, though, that you've got something so specific, yeah, <laughs> Nikon didn't say we're going to do something that's going to capture a, a broad range of issues with cows. They're saying a cow giving birth, and when you look at the cost of it, the system itself, they charge you an annual fee about six thousand dollars annually. But that covers the technology and the updates and the monitoring, and mm. that's if you've got about a hundred cows. If you've got a bigger farm, that they charge you more, but. That doesn't seem like a lot of money to me, given mm. the value of a cow yeah. and the value of a farmer's time. I thought $6,000 a year to maybe help all your cars be born properly sounds like a reasonable well, look, sum. And that's
0: the, that's the price currently. Um, as the competition picks up or as the technology becomes more readily available, I wonder – you know, if, if that stays at that price or if it drops markedly.
1: I do wonder whether there's other companies out there, other technology companies who are saying, damn, <laughs> Nikon have got mm. to jump on us. Okay, on. What,
0: what else can we do? What can we add to our camera that takes photos? Of- <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> so maybe
1: they've got the market to themselves, who mm. knows. But I do It'll love to stimulate the
0: ideas in other ways.
1: One that can watch sheep. Well, there you go. It could do all sorts <laughs> of things. But that one there, farmers out there, go and look it up. Nikon and AI imaging for... Cow I'm not sure what it's actually called, the whole system, but I'm sure if you Googled all of that, you'd find something.
0: It'd be worth your while. And just because we love primary producers so much here at Tech Talk, here's another story for those on the land. A lot of farm machinery relies on GPS these days, and from what I gather, it works pretty well. But getting access to the internet from out on the back paddock is another story surely in 2024 this doesn't have to be the case. And it really doesn't now that Starlink has peeled away the barriers for rural and remote, or for the rural and remote folks, I should say. What about that, Matt? Yeah, I think that's
1: a great idea. And you've got lots of these farming implement, farming agricultural machinery companies, John Deere is one of them, where they've got this wonderful technology and they've got it all working fantastically in the laboratory. Hmm. And then the farmer gets out, to their farm and they go, well, that's great, but how can I monitor How can I do all these things you've talked yeah. about when I've got no internet access? Now, GPS is fine. GPS doesn't need internet access. So that can help the tractor stay on track if you're just doing self-driving. But you'd want to be able to monitor things. You want to monitor how your tractor's going. Yeah, are there any issues with it? Of other
0: things. So know, Checking weather forecasts. And, well, that's, and, yeah, you yeah. can do that
1: as well. So John Deere has partnered up with SpaceX, who of course are the producers of Starlink or the Starlink Satellite Internet system, And they've done a deal where basically you can get your John Deere tractor with Starlink service built in. I don't have pricing yet. It's so new there's no pricing that's been announced. But for a farmer, if you said, well, that tractor's now got access to the internet so you can monitor it, mm. you can keep on top of what it's doing, you can be sitting back and have one of the, the young staff around the farm, one of your kids maybe, driving that tractor, looking after it, you can sit back and you can get alerts back in the household if they're doing the wrong thing, if they're yeah. maybe driving too fast down that little bush track that you you're going be between paddocks, whatever. Emailing you can,
0: distributors, all sorts of stuff.
1: Well, then on the tractor, exactly right, you can be doing some work because most of the tractors now, you turn it at the end of a row and then you sit back and let it drive for you because you want to make sure you don't, if you're sowing, for example, you don't over-sow mm. or don't have a gap between that. It's a bit boring along there and some farmers say they just download a few movies and watch them on an iPad because mm. they can't do effective work. But if you sat there with your tablet, you can, as you say, email some distributors, email off, do some work, catch up with whatever you're Facebook. doing. All sorts of things. <laughs> Sorry. All those important things. <laughs> <laughs> so that seems like a great idea why hasn't someone done it before? Well, Mm. you could probably do Starlink, the mobile version, but probably people haven't thought about it and saying, well, this Starlink's new. Do I go and fit up my tractor with it? But if there was an option when you're ordering your tractor, do you want Starlink for that, sir? Well, sure, why not? again, if it was a reasonable price, that sounds quite sensible. Mm. Now, the interesting part about this is that John Deere themselves have said that they want to have around about 10% of their revenue from software services by 2030. Now so for them, that only really works if you've got connectivity. If you yeah. want to sell more software services, and they'd probably count the on-selling of Starlink as a software service. They'll do some wholesale deal I'm sure with Starlink and then sell it. So it's not just about producing tractors. Mind you, they reported fifty-five point six billion dollars in tractor sales last year in equipment sales. So They're not going too bad for that, but they want to keep adding to that with services and with these various service sales that they Mm. go on. And the other big secret for all of these is to try and get the ongoing revenue. They don't want to just have the initial sale and then no more money after that. They want the ongoing revenue. Sounds like a good deal for John Deere. Sounds like a good deal for the farmers.
0: And as the warning lights start flashing away on the control panel with a total meltdown imminent... It's time for Matthew and I to make ourselves scarce before the authorities show up and want answers.
1: Was that meltdown coming because of the sonic booms we've been putting out?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks for another cracking tech talk all the same, Matt. My pleasure. And while I don't think I'm likely to lose any sleep over the Apple Massimo affair, my wife may be keen on one of those anti-snore pillows, for me that is, uh, and there'll be a good night's sleep all round and 99% less crankiness in our house. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. It's always a pleasure to put in a little podcast together and we're grateful for the opportunity that you and the listeners have allowed us. I'm your host, James Eddy, and together with Matthew, we're both looking forward to being back with you in a week's time for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickinson. Until then, take care and we'll catch you later.